0: Hello, podcast fans. This is Swimfan from Open Betas, the podcast you're listening to. In today's episode, we interview gaming industry veteran Vagar Bawius, and we have a great discussion about generative AI in games. Uh, or we, we did, uh, except I messed up the record. But we still have a scintillating 50 minutes of the interview where we discuss Vagar's experience in the gaming industry, and that's what you're about to hear right now. Uh, We'll have Vegar back in the future to discuss an important gaming topic, but for now, enjoy the show! Welcome to the Open Betas podcast, starring me, Swimfan, and you, Regal. Hello. (laughs) That's good. I like your intro. Uh, I'm Swimfan. I'm a reformed marketing director for (laughs) video games, and this is Regal, who is a software engineer. Currently a software engineer, yes. Undisclosed
1: company. Undisclosed company. Large tech company. Um,
0: it's Metacrawler. <clears throat> uh,
1: that's, well, that is that's the name of a company, but <laughs> I don't know how to say anything.
0: Okay. Uh, so today we have a special guest, um, uh, friend of mine from way back in Los Angeles working at Riot Games together. Please give a big hand to Vagar Bowieus. Welcome, Vagar. <laughs>
2: Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: yeah, i um, glad to have you. You're a first guest, so, you know, we're kind of Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I didn't realize that. It's system. a rare honor. Oh,
1: th- uh, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> One of a kind honor.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, but Begar has uh, experience in game development in particular, correct me if I'm wrong, in particular in production and product management. Yes? Yeah, my career is kind of straddled product and game design okay yeah tell us can you give us a you know a short version of your (laughs) your background the short version
2: of the background um well at Riot, i mostly did production well i came up through qa then did Uh production and product oh you came up to the through the dream the dream path to the dream yeah internship to qa uh, i grew that team and then um eventually was actually asked at riot do you want to do game design or production? We see a path for you on either. That's, I chose production at that point because that's what I felt like the company needed more because the they were scaling like crazy. We just needed more people to run initiatives uh, and teams. Um, so I chose production. At Riot, there was kind of a shift where production became product management. And that kind of mm-hmm. hints at this uh, broader question of, Exactly what is this role of production product management development yeah. management, project management, and how does it overlap with a bunch of the adjacents like game design? maybe mm-hmm, that's a mm-hmm. different discussion um, but that yeah, was <laughs> that was what I did at Riot after that, I spent some time doing pure game design uh, doing r& d in uh, mobile mobile games. Um, then, and then when
0: you say R and D, yeah, you're just like oh, yes, spinning sorry. up new, spinning up new projects on exactly. mobile. Exactly, R and R&D D is jargon is for
2: new games that are experimenting with some new type of gameplay, and you're just mm-hmm. in early development, so you're rapid prototyping, standing things up, playtesting it, maybe throwing it away, iterating, that kind of thing. Yeah, trying to find new ideas, and um, then I spent some time in publishing, actually, kind of, it was like a hybrid business strategy role at WB Games, helping them oh, right. do okay. their strategy for free-to-play games, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, I went to Player First Games, which is a startup of some ex-Rioters. And there we worked on Multiverse together, which actually launched uh, late last year. And right, now right. I have yeah. started my own studio.
0: Hey, all right. But you don't. Uh, can you talk about that studio, or is it under wraps mm-hmm. for now?
2: Still under wraps
0: for now, yeah. Okay, all right. We'll look forward to that. Out of curiosity,
1: what, um, what drove you to start your own studio? What are your goals for the studio?
2: Man, um, a lot of them. So there's a lot of different ways to have come at it. I was thinking about starting a studio for a number of years, actually taking the role at WB to me was a, a stepping stone to that because mm. I felt like I spent a lot of time in development across a lot of different phases of a game's life cycle, Uh, seen a lot of different um, aspects of the game development pipeline but what I hadn't seen is the business side of it I hadn't had um, I had some exposure but I'd never run like a P&L a profit and loss sheet or a budget Um, and so that's kind of part of the impetus for me to join WB is to get more exposure to that side of things Uh, and over there I you know helped direct some millions of investment in new game titles. Mm-hmm. So when it was about you know, a year and a half in, um, I was very frank with them going in. I was like, hey, this very, frankly, publishing is not my forever job, what I see myself doing for forever. So this is probably gonna be like a year to two year stint for me. And they were very fine with that. So when a year and a half came up, um, I was then thinking about what I wanted to do next. One of the companies I was actually working with through WB was Player First Games and Multiverses, which I just, you know, I really liked working with them. I was really excited about that space and the opportunity, and I really wanted to see the game to launch. So, you know, instead of just leaving WB and starting my own thing right away, I talked to Player First about whether it made sense for me to join them directly and help them more directly. Uh, So that's why I made that jump. And then once that game got to launch, Then it was kind of back to, okay, is it time to start a new studio? Because I had this game idea I was really excited about. There were people I was talking to that were excited to kind of go on the journey with me. So it just seemed like the right time.
0: Nice. Yeah, you've got, uh, so now you've got some well-rounded skills. You've got uh, got the bidness. The the the
2: bidness, yeah.
0: Yeah, you didn't want to be a you didn't want to be a suit for the rest of your life. Uh, (laughs) Why not? (laughs) I think
2: there's like a natural timeline on being in uh, on the business side of things, or like you know going into kind of the executive levels in game development, where you just get so far removed from the way the game is made, and also the way the game is played that after you know five to ten years in that role, you just lose a connection. To both of those things so you become yeah. less effective at running the team you become less effective at gauging what is good like what are players even looking for um so this
0: reminds me oh finish your thought i'm sorry
2: i mean i'm just it's not a hard and fast thing like i think there's executives out there that really push themselves to understand to, to play games actively to understand players but it requires more active uh thought and action than when you're actually in the trenches building something
0: right so right. do you think uh do you think Merrill and beck at uh riot games pulled it off yeah sometimes? i mean they're
2: huge gamers i yeah for yeah. sure i think they're still playing games
0: yeah I, I that always impressed me a lot that that was a big factor in me joining and staying at riot for as long as i did was mm-hmm. just like yeah, the, the execs actually play the shit, and they're better than I am. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, because sure.
0: I've told some I've told some stories on this podcast about Activision and uh, being in a meeting, being in meetings where the the devs are like demoing their game on uh, demoing their game for an exec, and they're like, "Hey, do you want to do you want to take the controller and like give it a spin?" And them like acting like they're holding a, an alien baby or something, yeah. like they 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 were. Pl- I remember seeing Call of Duty. It was. Black Ops and uh, the original Black Ops, and they took the control in and just immediately like started walking forward and looking straight down. You know, if you've never used mm-hmm. the two sticks. Because mm-hmm. so.
2: they're just like pressing forward on both of them. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Tossing a grenade at their feet and dying. That's <laughs> yeah, that yeah, like, could be yeah, painful okay. to watch. Thanks, boss.
1: Yeah. But it's very interesting yeah. that you say that um, even the execs who come up through the ranks of doing that every day, of playing the games every day and or doing you know development or project management and things like with oh, their hands are doing, that you kind of lose that over time. Because when Sun Van told that story, I kind of got the impression that, you know, these are just people that were hired from outside the industry, right? Because they had business acumen. I mean, there is that, some, of but, that, right? Right? Yeah, uh, some of that, right? Yeah, there's some of that, particularly
0: like in an Activision type place. Yeah, yeah, I, I
1: get that. But it is really interesting that somehow, you know, you feel like you lose it um, naturally, you know, as time mm. goes by.
2: For sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think part of that can also be age, you know, as people grow up and they get married and they have kids and right. a mortgage and all these responsibilities. And then they're also running like a multi-hundred person organization. It can be difficult to say, hey, tonight I'm just going to play some WoW for five hours. Right. Yeah. Like that's a yeah. difficult decision to make. But I think if you're in games, yeah, no, you kind of have to make that decision. And ideally, it shouldn't be a decision. It should just be the thing you're excited to do. But, you, you know, you have to find time in your life to do it.
1: I had this idea, um, not that I think it's a revolutionary idea or something, but what if you, um, what if you made it part of the company's, um, not policy, I guess, but just part of the company to do more content, right? Like having official uh, Twitch, YouTube, whatever channels, um, and have more, more streams of, you know, the, dev, the devs playing, but in this case, the execs playing once in a while, right? Where you mm. build it into their schedule where it's like, hey, you know, for our content, we just want you as the exec to come and like try the game for 30 minutes a week um, or you can rotate teams or whatever.
2: Yeah. Now is the, is the streaming part or like the YouTube upload part, the important part of that, or is it just
1: the playing Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's hard to, well, hopefully it will be both, right? I mean, ideally you would kill two birds with one stone here where it's like you get more visibility into the game uh, for people that need it, but the project is also good. But, uh, you know, I think Mm -hmm. as Sun Fan pointed out, it's hard for a company to do that when, if the game, for example, is like unfinished or if the end result isn't good.
2: uh, Yeah. Well, I think what pops to my mind is that can feel really risky for people to put themselves in front of an audience. yeah. Uh, cause you can just end up with a foot in your mouth, you know, like there was the famous blizzard. Um, oh, do you guys not have phones? And like, I don't know the person that said it, but I know people that do and they're like, Oh, that's so unfortunate cause that guy's a really great guy. You know, he's so passionate about game development and games. And so like, I would believe that he just, that's just something that came out of his mouth without thinking and then that gets posted on Reddit and he's now super maligned by the player community. They're attaching all their grievances to him. And that's just like super high risk, right? When the end goal is just, hey, can we make sure everyone's really connected to the game we're making, the experience we're trying to create for players and what players are saying.
1: Do you think that kind of thing will for, you know, through for the community, because um, it's hard to, I don't get a whole view of the community, right, because um, I only see slices of it. Um, do you think that kind of thing in the community goes away if you have more exposure over time, where it's not just like this one person said one thing once and then they retreat into the shadows? Um, if they become more of a personality that's known with their strengths and weaknesses more publicly known, do you think that goes away or do you think it sort of does really it even out a bit yeah. at least?
2: Maybe. I mean, I think there's a potentially a <laughs> huge upside too, where like if you are regularly communicating with the community and you're sharing your thoughts and you're staying visible, they could really love that. Um, but the, you know, there's the two sides of it. And I think if you look at the history of uh, public facing personalities within game studios, it's a pretty spotty record. You know, where like you have Morello at Riot where people just started blaming him for everything. You have Ghostcrawler when he was at uh, World of Warcraft. They started blaming him for everything. So it's hard to say. I think it also depends on what are they what are they communicating? Because I think for Morello and Ghostcrawler, they had to become the mouthpiece of many changes. And so when changes were poorly received then they could get blamed for it, even though it was really coming from broader direction and the rest of the team. Yeah, Whereas, a lot if of you times,
0: community managers like that get into just sort of being the flak jacket for
2: exactly. all the developers. But then you have other developers that are not responsible for being kind of the figurehead of a team and the more challenging things that need to be communicated. And they're basically only, you know, they'll post up like little snippets of like, hey, here's a character I'm working on, and the community loves it. Because they're like, oh, we didn't expect to get this, but it's like a present, and we're just getting some insight, and basically everything this person says is always a delight. Because they have no responsibility to the company or to the community to communicate the hard stuff. So what you're saying is
1: we need to hire Roger Goodell, right? So we need (laughs) Roger Goodell version of... NBA fans love him. <laughs> exactly. No, no, we—that's—that's that's kind of his job, right? Where um, yeah, he takes the flack for he, he just the takes the, the flack for everything, and then yeah, uh, yeah. So we need one community manager that wears mm-hmm. the Roger Goodell hat that takes make, puts all the negative posts out, takes all the heat. They don't even have to be a real person. Yep. We can make them an AI. Uh, you know, <laughs> and AI generates all the posts, pretends to be a real person, and then you know all the rest of the devs only send good news. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. That. yeah i mean we do we do that in some ways i i
0: remember in publishing in marketing it's like giving making sure that we present like the bad news right before we're gonna put out a lot of good news and make sure mm-hmm. that the right people are associated with the right things uh yeah and yeah i guess some people kind of get the sh- the short end of that stick most likely in community management but
2: for sure it could be a rough job part of your job yeah, <laughs> that is a rough
0: job. You gotta have a thick skin. You gotta not take it personally, For which sure. I would never be able to do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> how, I mean, how did you survive it? Or was the nature of me? your marketing? Yeah, nobody knew me. I wasn't.
0: I oh, wasn't you didn't have to be a, the guy. Yeah, you didn't I mean, I did post on the forums and stuff sometimes, but usually I was just like, "Hey, Ryan Rigney, like community guy who's a better writer and a better better at this than I am. Like, go mm-hmm. talk about this." and i'll let you know if i see it. <laughs> and uh we got an angry mob forming. can up you up, can guess.
2: you get in there <laughs>
0: yeah i mean i had to do shit like that on twitter for like call of duty and some other Ooh. activision games where it's like this is you know it's social media management but it's just like yeah. we have no idea what we're doing we're posting posting links to the trailer or whatever uh yeah and then luckily i just uh, i i guess i once i was promoted enough i didn't i didn't have to do that stuff so i didn't didn't put myself in the line of fire makes uh, sense but there's some people that are just so much they're so good at it they're just good at being like yeah that's i'm not gonna be defensive mm-hmm. they're not defensive people they're not yeah because some people some people just like take it really to heart and just jump right back into like i'm gonna argue with this random mm-hmm. person and it's like hey is, there's not no yeah. more in that
2: And I mean, I think that's also a full time job because, you know, people think like, oh, it's just take five minutes to respond to the top thread on the Reddit. Like, why couldn't you just do that? Well, run off to a meeting
0: for the rest of the day. Yeah,
2: You need to make sure you're you're fully informed on what is actually happening on the development team um, so you can be informative and not just, you know, say nonsense that doesn't become real. And then you also have to really understand where the community is coming from not just from the game perspective, like let's say in World of Warcraft, what are players doing? But then also, what is the sentiment around that? What are they saying? What are all the nuances of the argument on either side or one of the many sides before you come in yeah. and try to address all of it? It's, yeah. it's really time consuming.
0: It's, you gotta really be, be ready to be the expert and be able to speak for other people that, mm-hmm. for other people's work. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a big responsibility.
2: Yeah, because a common pitfall is to just promise something and be like, oh, hey, don't worry, we're going to totally fix this in the next patch. Then yeah. you go to the team and they're like, oh, that patch is already locked and loaded. It's been on the All PTR right. for, you know, a week and a half now, and it's literally scheduled to go out in a few days. We have yeah, no way of changing it. Yeah, and
0: we're going to take this piece of feedback. That yeah, and so no it's no was like,
2: okay, well, <laughs> let, me, let me go back to the community and tell them, okay, it's actually in the one after. And then they're like, well we just estimated the work and it's it's pretty significant. It's gonna take us at least two months to do. And then you go back to the community and say, hey, actually guys, it's two, it's two months. And at that point, the community is like, we don't believe anything you say at this point. You've just been <laughs> lying to us.
0: Yeah. I, there's also like, in big organizations, there's so much coordination. Mm-hmm. And I think from the player side, it's, unless you have experience already, and a lot of these people are generally younger, but, uh, They they just sometimes they don't believe it when you say like oh uh," or or like when a disconnect happens in communication or something within an organization Mm -hmm. they're like oh yeah oh come on like you guys come on billion dollar organization
2: like you guys are professionals how could this happen it does happen all the time it's hard
1: Yeah. Yeah. for context we actually just did a two parter on feedback which is uh, which informed a lot of this discussion in the
0: past it was hard hitting
1: have you um do you follow the magic the gathering development cycle at all um uh, no not very closely. specifically so mark rosewater is the lead designer uh, the highest mm-hmm. ranking basically the head of r&d um for magic um and he so he's actually very unique in this sense where he does a podcast and a column and he he like sets sets aside specific parts of his day to listen to feedback um I think he does that because he wants to, but also he he sees a role for himself as sort of the mouthpiece of the company, as the lead yeah. designer, and not as a community manager. Which is, the more you talk about it, the more I kind of appreciate how unique that is. Right. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, he's a, a ton of work. Yeah, it is a ton of work for sure. Um, but he he makes it a priority to sort of like share reasons why things happen with the community. Um, but if I think mm-hmm. back to the kind of things he shares, it's almost never the kind of thing you described, where it's like boot on the ground next set is going to have this next is going to have this it's all Mm -hmm. historical data for the most part like Mm -hmm. hey here's a set that came out we designed it two years ago let me talk through the process of the thing that has already come out yeah and i guess that is a lot easier that's Mm -hmm. a lot easier
2: because then you can also pick and choose yeah exactly you know oh i'm going to talk about this really popular set that players loved then maybe Mm -hmm. i'm going to gloss over i have no idea by the way i don't want to say this is what he does Mm -hmm. but i'm imagining Mm -hmm. It's easy for him to, you know, gloss over the less popular ones. Say, yeah, we learned a lot on that one, and kind of leave it there.
1: And that usually comes out, you know, if a set like flops, he'll usually do a couple, and then he'll go back and do a retrospective like a year after when the Mm -hmm. heat has cooled down. I don't know if he does it on purpose, but I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? The the strategy there, um, when when you're talking about the way feedback is handled. Yeah. so i do think there is there is a way to like share a lot of information in the community but you just have to be very careful with it right like as mm-hmm. you said most of the time when you sort of just fire things off especially when you do act, things that are currently happening that's very dangerous right?
0: Mm-hmm. yeah and uh, also you don't want to end up creating another news cycle about something you don't want to talk about but inadvertently and that's always yeah. the like why sometimes we're just like you know what it's better not to say anything here. Let's just
1: mm-hmm. move on. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. The
0: only winning well, move is not to play. As,
1: as, you can, as you can see, we have a lot of tangents here. Many, many tangents. Um, yeah, do but, you want
0: to talk about the generative AI? Uh, I'll,
1: I'll ask for one more thing. Just for okay. people who are more interested, um, could you generative. give a brief timeline about like how long you spent at each role before you moved on um, and like what you kind of learned at each stage along the way? Like, how many Whoa. years did you spend?
2: It's <laughs> a big question.
1: <laughs> yeah, how many years did you spend at your first position? And then, you know, how long was, were you there before you got the little branching path between production and design and so on?
0: Oh, man. I've got your LinkedIn up, so this is going to be a <laughs> test. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fact check me.
2: Um, let's see. I was at Riot for four years, four or five. Um, mm-hmm, four, it says. And what was the second part? What did I learn at each
1: you yeah. <laughs> step. like what are the big what are the things you still remember being important learning experiences
2: man
0: I mean I guess, that's where you got in right like, that's
2: where I got mm-hmm. in yeah it's gonna be really hard to have a pithy one thing I learned from okay. Riot
1: it's a bit of everything um, yeah you can yeah, you can go for I, 10 minutes
2: and I think you know Riot's a fantastic studio that's still crushing it and I think um, there's a lot that basically the rest of the industry can still learn from what they're doing I think their focus on the player and the player experience is so critical, which sounds like, yeah, no duh, but when you go to other studios, you kind of realize, oh, actually a lot of development is guided by some other things that, like Mm -hmm. why are these things guiding development? Like, oh, you know, this artificial timeline that got put in by maybe a publisher, maybe an investor, maybe, you know, some executive, is now making a lot of decisions on the team's behalf because now they can't do, you know, they can't do a fifth act that would really bring the narrative together, or they can't do um, multiplayer when that is a super important, you know, element of the game, or you know, all these things. Um, so there's a lot of times where you come to a decision uh, you have to make in game development. And there's a lot of factors, and Riot Games has really taken a strong stance that the player experience is the one that makes that decision at the end of the day. And, you know, there's examples, like where I was working on um, a rune rework on League of Legends, and we had these runes that could give you like point zero some percent dodge. And you could stack a rune page to get up to like 5% dodge or 7% dodge, some amount that you really could not rely on you know, in any meaningful way in an engagement. But yeah. when you were fighting, and it came down to the last shot, and you and your opponent were just trading hits, and they hit you, and it's dodged, and you survive, and then you hit them and they die, that is an infuriating moment, just a really bad experience, And we didn't feel like that was a meaningful decision that was made on either side. Like, yes, technically you stacked a rune page. So like you could do some statistical analysis where, you know, maybe you could count on if you were hitting each other back and forth a hundred times, you're going to dodge seven of them and the opponent could have, and the opponent could have like clicked on you and looked at your stat sheet. I don't even know if we displayed your dodge percent. Anyway, we, we looked at this and we felt like this is not serving gameplay Uh, We want dodging to be more meaningful. It can still be a good mechanic, but the runes are not serving a purpose. There were also masters that did this. Um, So we wanted to redesign those and take out dodge runes, Uh, but players had already spent uh, basically in-game currency on dodge runes at that point. So then we had to do an analysis. Okay, so if we refund everyone's dodge runes, because of course we have to refund it if we're taking them away, um, how much soft currency is that putting back in the market? And then how much is that basically gonna cannibalize champion sales? And uh, we asked the, you know, the analysts and they told us millions of dollars. Doing this change is gonna cost the company millions of dollars. Um, and this was you know, back when League of Legends was doing well, but still growing. It wasn't a juggernaut yet. And so this was, this was a, a debated topic. And I literally had opinions from people across the company that were emailing me like, hey, I don't think this is the right thing to do. It's not the right time. Um, Do we need to do this? I I remember this. This is a a big
0: deal.
2: Yeah. And it it got to a point where I, you know, got into a conversation with Mark Merrill about it because it got escalated up. And, um, you know, I described the whole situation. And he asked, like, "Okay, what's your judgment? I said, I think the game is going to be better if we remove it. What do you think? He's like, yeah, we do what's right for the player. And that was that. Like, literally, that was just done. We're doing it. We're going to forego millions of dollars in revenue because this is the right thing for the players. Um, And there's, like, hundreds and thousands of those decisions being made constantly. And at Riot Games, the decision is very clear. And that's just, you know, something that I think will always uh, be carried with me on anything I work on.
0: And part yeah, of the I... part of the bet there, right, is that, you know, long term, if you do right by the people playing your game, you're going to have more good feelings about your game and your developer. Mm-hmm. You're going to have loyalty. You're going to have people telling their friends about this sort of thing. It's just, mm-hmm. it, um, even if it's not seeming to be a good business decision in the short term, it could be in the long term. Yeah, even even besides the point that uh, it's the right thing to do. <laughs>
2: yeah. I
0: think, yeah, I I think... When
1: this happened actually. Anyway. Yeah, you, What's can... That? <laughs> you can remember. Were you running a full dodge rune page? Uh, I was not, but I, I remember when you this love was dodge. I also remember. <laughs> do you remember when people used to run one crit rune?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Same reason. Yeah. Just um, that one infuriating crit.
1: Just lose a lane because someone just randomly crit you with their like, 0.78% mm-hmm. yep. chance.
2: They just plink you every now and then, fishing yep. for a crit. Yeah.
1: Um,. I lost my train of thought I, I i'm very interested in what you know how the testing was done what the decision was i feel like we could, we could talk about this for like an hour uh, but i'll let you go uh, but it is very interesting to me that the way the feedback was was gathered across because i imagine it's actually it wasn't only the fact that you lose money that people in the company were against this change right like i'm sure you also had arguments from a design perspective about um the design
2: debate was actually a little bit simpler because i think everyone agreed from a gameplay perspective um the dodges just felt too capricious mm -hmm. in a way that for example crits did not because with items it was easier to get to a point where crits were more guaranteed right so like Mm -hmm. if you run a full crit page you could get like i forget somewhere between 10 and 15 percent crit which already starts feeling meteor but then if you get an infinity edge you know, and a Phantom Dancer, now you're over half the time you're critting. Yeah, you know, that is no, something I just, you can count on in a fight.
1: I just remember there's no dodge items in League of Legends, right? There's no items that Um At evasion. the time,
2: I think it was only Phantom Dancer, maybe. Okay. I think Phantom yeah, Dancer was right. 20%. Later on, Ninja Tabi gave
1: 12%. Oh, Tabi still gave. Because Tabi's gives armor at the time. Yeah, the last I think Tabi's. I yeah, okay. it, Tabi's have changed okay. quite a bit. Make, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I remember I a like similar ARN. conversation. I don't. <laughs> okay, last thing on League of Legends. I remember a similar conversation had was had externally about when Rise got reworked into a skill shot champ. Um, okay. That for some reason that just reminded me of it. Where
2: that was probably there, more game design contentious.
1: Yeah. Um, and i wonder what the conversation was like about there because there are because you you said you actually played dota right at least dota one a ton um, of
2: dota yeah
1: there's a lot of differences between Logan and dota which are similar to this dodge rework um mm-hmm. where things that are frustrating are removed there I, I don't think a lot of decisions i don't think are quite as clear cut as the dodge one i agree with you that the dodge one is five percent seven percent dodge ruin is sort of nonsensical but mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of similar decisions where um, there's like points of frustration that are removed that perhaps are not quite as clear cut um from just being better or worse that mm-hmm. I'd be interested in something to talk about, but not today we have more to, get to. <laughs> so you spent so you spent four to five years at um riot yeah how many positions did you have during that time
2: um I think in terms of disciplines, I went q a production which became product management, so in some way two.
1: Okay. And where did you go after that?
2: Uh, From there, I went to Pocket Gems, um, where I worked in mobile games. So they were doing, um, they they had like a bunch of legacy games that had been at the top of the app store, you know, back in the day. They were now interested in pivoting to be um, doing more core experiences, more gameplay first style games. Um, which I thought was fascinating because I was you know, playing some mobile games at the time. I thought it was a very interesting space. Most of the games at the time, as they still are now, you could probably consider not gameplay first. Um, and so from that experience, I learned a lot about the mobile ecosystem and why it looks the way it does, which is fascinating. And I think it doesn't get talked about a whole lot.
0: Um, yeah, I'm interested.
1: I would love to hear
2: this. <laughs> I mean, the core of it is that um, you don't have as, and I'll put this in quotes, savvy of an audience in the sense that um, players don't go out looking for like the best games and then read articles, listen to what people are talking about and then pick one. They typically go to the app store when they're like at the airport or on a bus mm-hmm. ride and they'll kind of, you know, go through what's promoted um, or they will go in the top list or more likely. They're doing some other activity, they see an ad, and they click on the ad. Now, that has a shaping effect on what types of games can be successful. Because you can't just make a good game because no one will discover it. Or at least it's very rare. It's it's incredibly uphill battle to just make an excellent mobile game and hope that people discover it through word of mouth. The primary way to get players is to acquire them through uh, spending on ads. So that means Jeez. that you are spending for every player you're bringing in, which means you need to do the spreadsheet math and make sure that you're getting more value out of each player than you're spending to get them in. So right. you have no, what's man. called the CPI, which is the cost per install. And then you have the mm-hmm. LTV, which yeah. is the lifetime value of the player. Mm-hmm. And, um, a lot of decisions are made around making sure that that is a positive number, that you're getting more value out of the players than you're spending to get them, because otherwise you're spending money to lose
0: money. Yeah. and Doesn't so, that, uh, that, I mean, maybe it's, it's always this way, that kind of seems to favor the larger companies that already have cash and maybe cross promotion reach to for sure. just put out new shit. Yeah. yeah.
2: and. You know, one element of that is for mobile games, a studio might spend a fraction of its budget, like maybe 15% or 20% on making the game itself. And they stand it up in like three, six months. And then they spend their remaining, you know, 80% of the budget on ads and marketing.
0: Wow, what a world. And so
2: most of the money you raise for a mobile studio is actually on acquiring users and not on making the game.
0: Um, is that why we get those uh, really weird ads where the there's like a pregnant lady and you have to like uh-huh. she like lo- that's <laughs> actually, exactly that is exactly this. why you
2: see those ads because they're so weird they're, they're the just more jump people, out to get
0: your attention right
2: exactly the more people you can get to tap on your ad the lower your cost per install uh-huh. and so that's why you get game companies that essentially show you something that is not the game it, they're just looking to world. get you to tap on the commercial. <laughs> Uh, on the on the ad and get you yeah. to install the game
0: this um, game will make you come in five minutes
2: yeah exactly it's candy crush Just, yeah bizarre things like that mm-hmm. and uh that means that most of the innovation in the mobile space is not on the gameplay side it's either on the marketing side or like you know how do you, how do you get better analytics on the money you spend on ads and tracking the players through the through the system, so you can hone that more, or it's on monetization systems and retention systems.
0: Ah, that kind of that sucks. So from,
2: from a mobile executive perspective, the decisions are, you know, the way to be successful is to either have better insights on how to acquire users, or to monetize them better once they're in. And so we, you know, what the thought process is, We're going to spend time and effort on honing those things, on building better monetization systems, and we're just going to use a snap to for the gameplay. So we're going to just do a match three. We're going to do a merge game. We're going to do, you know, one of these existing known good core gameplay loops. And then Mm -hmm. we're going to really focus our attention on the other parts that are more material to our business in mobile.
0: Yeah, so you get a lot of samey shit out there.
1: Yeah, we we have this topic planned too, but it's fascinating to hear about why it is. Which makes a lot of sense. Do you think it's I an mean, ecosystem sense, yeah. or a uh, a platform thing? So what I mean is, do you think it's caused by, for example, the domination of the App Store and the Play Store on what's available? Like when you when you open the App Store, you don't get very much information, right? You you literally just get what the algorithm ranks for you, what's promoted, and then some top lists. Um, or mm-hmm. do you think it's more like those those larger ecosystem things, articles, um, things like that can exist because of some limitation with it being a smartphone game as opposed to a PC or console game, which has more options uh, or more people? Because, like, for example, people don't want to sit at their desk and play a mobile game, right? It's like a very mm-hmm. specific time. Um, mm-hmm.
2: It's hard to say. I think there's a number of factors. I think part of it's going to be audience, like... The audience for mobile games is going to interact with games in a different way. Um, I think you see some of that in the games that can be successful. Like really long-form, deep session games have a harder time on mobile because that's not how people want to play mobile. Like if they're able to sink in five hours on a game, they're probably at home and they probably have access to their computer or their yeah. console right there. And people will play on the highest fidelity gaming device they have available. So it's. It's just not going to be the phone at the moment. Um, I think part of it can be the app store, you know, in terms of discoverability. But, you know, I think it's really just that uh, the app store is not great at surfacing a lot of uh, content for people, quality content for people. So that's why most of it comes through ads. Um, now, could things be different if one of those variables changed? Uh, probably but it's really hard to
0: predict how. Yeah, how would that happen? Yeah. Do, you have, sense, do you have a sense? Do you have a ballpark sense of how many mobile games exist? I
2: <laughs> oh, just no. <laughs> so <laughs> I so many. Up. So many. There's a very low barrier to just uploading mm-hmm. something. Yeah. I made my own little thing over a holiday Lovely break. Bird. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. What's it called? Can i see
2: it uh, it's not it's not listed <laughs> okay yeah, i here. didn't want to pay the hundred dollars thing to and you have to also update it as you know the os is update and yeah. for me it was just a fun hobby project
1: we had a dis- gotcha. we had a debate a couple of episodes back about whether there were more games ever made or more movies um, oh my argument was if uh so the numbers are available actually i forget i looked them up um that time but if you look on the app store page uh, or the google play store it just lists the number of things that are categorized under games so my yeah. argument was if you're going to call these non-cinematic release movies as movies i get to call the you know crappy high school project uh, totally uh games as games yeah. um i think it's i still millions. think movies
0: i still think movies are bigger maybe just because uh, talking about barrier to entry to make right like, everyone's got a camera
1: yeah, it depends I mean, if on if we're talking
0: you... about like short films and shit. Yeah,
1: I mean, if you count YouTube videos, you know, as movies, then obviously we have. Oh yeah, I'm curious issues. about
0: theatrical releases versus like
1: actual like published. Yeah, published uh, titles. Studio got published the titles. Nintendo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then the word "published"
2: win. is like, if you put it in the app store is that published.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, or Steam yeah. Greenlight. Um, yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Well, we'll think more about that. Out there so where did you go after the mobile adventure oh uh then i was
2: at wb games uh working in you know kind of slate strategy slash uh business Uh um, what is business what is slate strategy uh like a game slate so when you have when oh. you're like wb and you have many many different studios under your umbrella then you start having conversations about what is an effective slate of games so for example when you own the dc ip does it make sense to launch five batman games in one year probably not Um, so you you need to start thinking about how do you kind of do air traffic control for which studios are working on what ip in what genres to make sure we're serving a broad audience with a mix of ips that could be interesting to different people Um, and so in particular for me, I was focused on free-to-play since that was my background and that's not something they had really done a lot of before. They were really focused on box games. Um, I think my big learning from that experience was getting to see uh, how some of those decisions were made at a big a big publisher. So for example, one of the most interesting things I discovered was um, around why games do or do not get canceled. And Hmm. so, you know, a a lot of times people ask, oh, how could this game get canceled? It was almost there at launch. I think most people know it's because the marketing budget is in many cases as big as the development budget. So they're actually saving half of their budget or more by canceling it now if they feel like this is for sure not going to be a a hit. Right. Um, The other side of it is... How do, how do games not get canceled when they're clearly struggling is um, the way that the cost of a game um, gets accounted for on the balance sheet is, is amortized in a way where the costs are not realized until the game is launched. And so on launch day, they recognize if this game costs $10 million to make, that's when they incur 10 million of losses on their balance sheet. But it's offset by the sales. So if they made 50 million, then really they now have 40 million on their balance sheet because it cost them 10, but they made 50, everything's good, we're in the positive. Now, if you cancel a game that's halfway through development, so they're five million in the hole, you realize all five million in losses on the day you cancel that project. There's no no profits to offset it, it's just pure loss. And it happens in one quarter, and you know, someone's going to be responsible for that decision, even though they weren't the one that started the project or greenlit the project, they are going to be the one responsible for $5 million in losses when they cancel the yeah. project. So no one wants to make that decision. So they kind of, it's easier for them to say, okay, let's greenlight them for the next 2 million. And you know, maybe that person's not in the role to be on the hook down the road when it flops Absolutely. or has to be canceled
0: interesting so you're kicking the can down the road kicking the can <laughs> down the road yeah uh, yeah Fuck. yeah and i mean the whole uh, realizing your profits and losses every fucking quarter and reporting to your stakeholders uh, shareholders and all that it really has an effect on what when games come out which games come out mm-hmm. it's because you don't you see so many i mean activision is like this too so many short they're looking at the short term. they are looking at the short term all the time.
2: Oh, totally, yeah. And there's conversations around, hey, you know, Q4 this year is looking really empty. Like yeah. we don't have anything. Can we move up this game that was set to launch in Q2 the next year? Is there any mm-hmm. way we can pull it up? And then you get into crazy land where it's like, oh, um, well, maybe if you give us you know X million in additional budget, we can ramp up hiring like crazy. And then if you allow us to work with this other external studio and they augment it. And then you get into mythical man month territory. And um, it's all just in service of, you know, once again, like misaligned incentives, not thinking about what's better for the player. It like, how do we make Q4 look okay to shareholders?
0: Yeah, totally different area you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. This game on my shirt here, Singularity, uh, which you probably never heard of, is, uh, was an example of that. It was, it was something that one of the studios, I think, Raven Software, one of the Call of Duty, Later Call of Duty people, um, was working on this game for a long time, and they asked for an extension to finish it, and they were like, "Nope, you got to put it out this this holiday season." And so they cut huge swaths of the game, and it it doesn't really fit together. Like it's mm. very the story's kind of confusing. It has interesting yeah. elements, but it's clearly chopped up, mm. and you know, it, it didn't. It, it also yeah. got no marketing, so it's just sort of lost in the. You know, they picked yeah. up whatever small profits they could. I guess. So yeah, it sounds like so
1: painful. Yeah, it sounds like we all feel like this is not, quote unquote, the right way to do things. Where do you think it could be improved based on your experience at different places, or do you think this is just the way it is if you work at, WP Studios?
2: Um, it's hard. Like in that scenario, um, when you are a public company, or in their case, they were going through a merger with AT and T. Now they've oh. been acquired by Discover. Um, it's really difficult to wait. Discover the, the credit
0: card company?
2: No, no uh, TV. Oh, Discovery. 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 Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, that would be funny. <laughs> uh, it's really hard to enact change because you are um, you're constantly reorging. You know, the the leadership is changing constantly. Uh, the people that are in leadership positions may have their hands tied. Either they're super preoccupied with the previous change that was happening or they have their hands tied on what they can change. And then even if they can change it and they have the capacity to do it, they need to manage that change through an organization of thousands of people, which is also not easy. That's not just an email you send of, hey guys, we should care about the players. Um, That is, you know, behavior you have to model over years and conversations you have to have um to really it come from the top too
0: like it has to really come from the top that. yeah
2: yeah
0: or else at the end of the day you're like well i'm not getting i'm not getting evaluated on that so
2: mm-hmm.
1: cool interesting and then from there you went on to player first if i remember player correctly. first yeah which is um, i guess based on the name uh the opposite model
2: <laughs> right. So really taking the, the Riot credo to heart. Um, I think the big learning there was just what can be accomplished with a small, dedicated team. Um, you know, it was a relatively small team. I feel really proud of the game we made and what we were able to accomplish. Um, and really is just, you know, a testament to not only what you can do with a, a small, experienced team, but I think also the incredible tools that are coming up, you know, with Unreal Engine, uh, we, we used four on that one, but now five and kind of how that can accelerate development quite a bit.
1: And when you say small, how small was the team actually? If you can share. how much you
2: can. Yeah. When I joined, it was like 20, 25, um, I don't know where they're at currently, uh, probably much higher, probably like 75, I would guess, but I don't know for sure.
1: And that's that's Pit. for the whole company, right? Not just the development team. That's like uh, marketing and everything. No, that's well, just the development. WB does the marketing, right? Uh, WB does the marketing. is there under okay. that. Yeah. I see. You know, and after Chinese, that, we have Chinese your Chinese WB. We have your current uh, right new unknown project, which we cannot we cannot talk about. Yeah. All right. Well, we yeah. made it. We made it through the introductions in 15 minutes. That's pretty good. It's better than we <laughs> normally do. So. We're at the gates. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, there's like seven topics that just spawned that I want to talk about, uh, but we'll stick with the one that.
0: Yeah. Let's try to. Yeah. We actually have. So let's. So now let's jump into.